On SFM Literature in our book two, Marita van der Feyfer, South African-born writer, has been living in France for nearly 20 years, I think. She's been enormously prolific in her career, both here and there. Poetry, journalism, children's stories, young adult stories, novels, cookbooks, columns, TV series and even movie scripts. There really isn't much that she hasn't turned her pen to. But her latest book, it's called A Fountain in France, is a sort of French window into her world that's been really skillfully compiled and presented. And Marita comes back to South Africa quite regularly, not quite with the seasons perhaps, but certainly often enough. And she's back with us right now, and uh, she, we've got her on the line to say hi. Hi, Marita. Hi, Nancy. Is it appropriate to say welcome home? Does it still feel like home? Yes, it does. It is appropriate. I, when I see Table Mountain, especially here in Cape Town, yeah. I feel at home. But there must be a sort of a slight sense of bipolarism. I mean, do you still feel some, I mean, when you're sitting on a plane, do you still feel a sort of gravitational pull in either direction? You know, I've got this mountain thing in, I, I live in the south of France and there's a Mont Ventoux, which I see. So when I come to Cape Town and I see Table Mountain, I feel home. And the same when I go to France. Not Paris. Paris is very far from, that doesn't feel like home at all. But when I'm in the south and I see the Mont Ventoux, then I feel home too. So I suppose it is bipolar, but it's positive rather than yeah, negative. Yeah, yeah, best of both worlds. I feel so. I, I, I'm enriched. I don't feel, I don't feel um, that it's a bad, negative thing. I feel I'm enriched by, and I'm very fortunate to have both cultures. And, and certainly the purpose of a lot of your writing, certainly this book, is to enrich other people with the experiences that you have. Just tell us a little bit about, well, I mean, I'm longing to talk about all your other writing because you do so many other things as well, but let's start with this book. It's called yes. A Fountain in France. I think it's a sort of compilation. Just explain to us how it came about and what you're, what you're saying. Yes, well, well, I hope I can also amuse other people yes. <laughs> rather than only enrich them. Um, I think, you know, the whole expat experience, um, South Africans live all over the world nowadays, um, and I think there's something universal about that. Though I write very specifically, you can either read the book specifically about, you know, the kind of year in Provence experience, but there's also something much broader that uh, about um, not really being at home in a place, and especially, the, you know, the cultural differences, language differences. And um, it leads to sometimes very humorous situations and, and sometimes quite dramatic situations, but afterwards, if you, if you retell it or if you write it in... In, 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 then it becomes you can laugh about it and I think it's more or less what I try to do also a bit of debunking the myth of the glamorous um, Provence life does it help you too I mean in unpacking you know you talk about it being humorous and dramatic I mean certainly from reading your book there are some situations where you are quite exasperating does it help you yes. to sort of make sense of it all and, and, and send it up a bit for yourself in writing it Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's one, there's, uh, there's one scene that I describe where there was a flood in the house because a pipe had burst and, you know, it's hard to get hold of plumbers. It was early in the morning and I was literally in tears and very wet and my daughter was about eight years old at that age, stage, came in and said, oh, tomorrow, Mama, um, you can write about it and make people laugh. And, and you know, and then I burst out laughing because I realized that's what I do. Um, we all do it in a way, I suppose, when we tell stories. 
but I do a lot of that. I have a monthly column also for 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 women's magazine, Sari, and a lot of is, is that kind of thing. And horrible things happen, and you retell it in a humorous way, and then it doesn't feel so bad, um, and you at least you amuse other people. Yes, but I suppose you don't necessarily need to go out and find these situations. I mean, you know, sometimes one just wants to live a boring old life where nothing really does happen. But you talk about the experience of being an expat. What, if you can synthesize it, what's the best of France and what's been the most challenging about it for you as an expat? Well, the best, definitely, um, more so than in many other places where you can live is the food and the whole <laughs> eating mm. culture. You know, you just cannot, you cannot really talk about France without <laughs> raving about cheeses and um, and and food. So yes, and that's how I ended up doing two food books, also winter food in Provence and yeah. summer food in Provence, which I never thought I would do because I wasn't actually a foodie before I went to France. And um, so that's definitely the best. Um, and the worst is the worst still today after nearly twenty years is the language. It mm. is a very difficult language, mm. which I never speak perfectly. Is that quite frustrating? I am sure you speak it a whole lot better than most people, um, but what, what you know, expatriates. But uh, is is that quite frustrating? I mean, do you sometimes battle to make yourself understood? Do you want to sort of stamp your feet because people are not getting it, or you're not getting it? It's not really that. I think by now I've learned to. I can make my. I can express myself in. In different situations, um, in the beginning, it's the technical things that get you when you have to speak to a plumber or to a, 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 a computer expert, you know, when you have an internet problem or an electrician. That was very hard to me in the beginning. But by now, no, that, that, that I, can, I can deal with. It's what, what frustrates me is when sometimes, um, it, it's happening less and less, but when people speak to me as if I'm an idiot. <laughs> you go to the doctor and they start using baby language because they think you, you're not clever enough when you don't speak perfect French. Shame. I, I imagine that you don't go to the doctor as often as some of the people that you know there because apparently, <laughs> according to your book, the French are the most terrible hypochondriacs and they take more medication than any other country. Extraordinary. Why? They are. Um, I don't know why. They're eating the wrong I, things. I can really vouch for that. And the doctors give you more medication than, than anywhere else. Um, my French husband, I must say, has been well trained. Um, by now, I think he has to be very ill because otherwise he, he, he probably... He tries to prove to me that he's not a sissy. Um, and so he doesn't go to the doctor as often. But, you know, it has to do with a very good health system, of course. Um, there's a very good social security. There are good doctors. There are brilliant hospitals. So, so it's, in, in, a, in one sense, it's comforting. But then also, when you have a system like that, there must be something in the French psyche, I think, that, you know, abuses it a bit. Because the Scandinavian countries also have very, very good uh, social systems and good hospitals, but people are not quite as... Uh, as a hypochondriac. Yeah, well, you would have thought with all, with all that delicious food that they eat that they would all be sort of so bonny and healthy. But, but you mentioned plumbers and electricians and builders and gardeners because we, the book, what the book also does is takes us from one house to another yes. house, the house of your dreams. Tell us about the house that you've left and the house of your dreams. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, it's not really, really the house of my dreams, but I, I always say you learn to compromise on, on everything, even your dreams. But I wanted, I wanted a house more in the countryside. We were in a small village, and when we bought that house uh, more than 10 years ago, it was really 
a small village with chickens still next door and there were pieces of vineyards in between houses and, um, and you know, development is happening very fast in the countryside. You can't stop it. You can't complain about it. But there's lots of ugly, they call it lotissement in, in, in French, you know, just ugly new uh, suburbs, even in the small villages going up and, and changing, you know, and the, and the chickens are disappearing and the, the vignettes are disappearing. And we wanted to be more in the countryside, you know, really. We knew we couldn't afford a farm, but we wanted to at least have a farm house. Um, and that took a while, and also we had teenagers in the house, and they were definitely not ready to go move even deeper into the countryside. Um, so we, we waited until the two boys were in their last school year, um, and the eldest son was already gone, and then we only had the, the daughter still in the house, and she was quite keen at that stage. She wasn't a teenager yet. And then we got hold of this very nice farmhouse because the property market went boom in about 2008 um, so we could have we could afford it um, and we did a lot of um, renovation on the house and that's lovely but with the house we also had to buy like not a farm but part of an old grain factory a silo a weighing bridge a huge garage we could park several aeroplanes and 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 things that we don't know what to do with <laughs> we still trying to get rid of some of this it sounds, uh, yeah, it sounds like it's quite a marathon. A lot of people sort of downscale. It sounds like you've upscaled, certainly in terms of space. But what's the story of the fountain? I mean, your final chapter, well, nearly your final chapter, is called Waiting yes. for a Fountain. What is it with the fountain? Well, then we had this, we had um, a big, like, nearly like a farmyard, you know, not really the kind of place where you can plant a lawn. This is also too dry where we live for lawns. It would be ecologically very stupid. So what people do with the farmyards, they have these small pebbles in, um, and they plant, you know, olive trees and so on. And we planted lavender and roses and everything. And we wanted, we knew we couldn't afford a swimming pool. And, and you, it, it wasn't really the place for that you would have had, you would have had to change too much. You know, maybe break down one of the buildings or whatever to, put up a swimming pool and we said, okay, maybe we can do that one day, but in the meantime, you want a water feature. And then we got this idea of a fountain because lots of the old courtyards have a fountain, you know, like a village fountain, not not the spouting fountains of Versailles, the palace, just a plain old fountain. And so it, it sounds easy, but <laughs> the story about that became, in a way, a metaphor. It became the F, you know, the fountain. It became the F word in our house for about two years. Uh, was finding the thing, uh, putting it together, installing it, um, a long saga. And then finally, um, we finally had it, and we want to have a party to celebrate turn on the fountain and celebrate and then it started raining and raining and raining and we thought we'd all roll around like the hippies in the Woodstock Festival in the 60s. In the end we had to have this fountain party in the garage. That I don't write about in the book because the book ends when you know, we were waiting for the party and the rain to stop. Um, and yes fortunately as I say we have this massive garage we, which is like a hangar and we could do the party there. But it's a um, it's a metaphor for things you want, and it, uh, they don't always turn out the way you want. Things don't. And what about you? How have you turned out? Have you changed? Have you Probably become... not the way I want <laughs> Well, you know, that's something that faces us all, isn't it? But does, have you become more French since you've been there? 
You know, um, I suppose yes and no. I don't feel, certainly, I don't feel French. I still feel very much South African. I think I'm, I'm, I'm terminally South African. But people do say to me, the other day I was speaking to somebody and suddenly I changed uh, at the French Festival, uh, literary festival where I was about two weekends ago. And suddenly I had to speak to some French writers there. And I spoke in French. And somebody, uh, also a radio person, turned to me and said, you know, you, you, you change completely when you speak French. Your whole body language changes. You're quite straightforward when you speak English or Afrikaans, and then, and then you have a different body language. So I suppose that, that comes with the, the language and with the culture that you do. I do believe that one is not the same person in different languages, which is why it's always immensely enriching to have another language. Any other language, I think, enriches us. And even if you don't speak it perfectly, like with me in French, I do feel it, it, it enriches me. Well, that's certainly an interesting thing for us to consider here in South Africa, where we have lots of languages to choose from. And I think if we, we will understand each other a whole lot better if we could speak more than just one. Just lastly, very briefly, Marita, you, it's been a compilation of a whole lot of things, because as I was reading it, I thought, gee whiz, how do you remember all this? But these are pieces that you have written over a period of time. Yes. Um, I was fortunate in that quite, I would say, the, the skeleton of, of this book with the pieces that I wrote as a monthly column for women's magazine. But then I also sometimes did um, pieces for other magazines, um, I think for Women in the Home, for, uh, for airline in-flight magazines. You know, people ask you to do columns from time to time. So some of them were actually in English and some was written in Afrikaans. And then in the end, so I had all that. And then I could write the story through that, following all these things so as if it was happening over a period of about four to five years. And I was fortunate in that I had um, Annalise Fisser, a very good translator, whom I've worked with before, and she's translated um, fiction of me also. And, um, and that helped a lot because I think, I think the translation reads as if it was written. It, it's a natural translation. I can hear my own voice. Do you write in French at all? No, a shopping list. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes notes... You know, when the children get ill and you, you have to write an excuse note to the teachers, and even then I usually have to ask the ill child to just check that I don't make a ghastly mistake, and the teachers <laughs> think, oh, shame, the mother can't even... So writing is def definitely more difficult than, 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 than speaking. Well, as you say, it's certainly lots of fun and uh, a window, a French window onto your world, but a very amusing one at that. Marita, blessing. Thank you very much. Merci bien. And uh, I'm sure we'll speak to you again next time you're back in South Africa. You it's take care. It's always lovely to talk to you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Take care. Marita Fantafeifer and her book is called A Fountain in France. And don't forget, incidentally, she has written two cookbooks, Winter Food in Provence and Summer Food in Provence, if you're a bit of a foodie, nice ones to lay your hands on. But A Fountain in France is published by Penguin.